everybody and welcome back for another episode of the Jazari Qual Show. So before we begin, I kind of want to give a little bit of a brief overview of everything that we've been doing this past week and say thank you guys to everybody who's reached out to donate and provide for the family that we're trying to help right now in need. If you follow the page, you would see that there is currently a family that's trying to integrate into the LNK community and currently we're trying to find permanent housing placement for them. We're trying to get all the necessities they need when they're moving house and you guys have been so cool about the outreach and the support for this family. It's pinned on the post on the Facebook page if you want to check that out. So today we have several different guests that are going to be joining us. So we're going to be joined by Ishma Valenti of the Malone Center as well as Preston Love Jr. from Black Votes, Ma Black Votes Matter who was also a candidate for the United States Senate in the 2020 election as well as a few members of the People Press that's going to be coming on and talking a little bit about the impeachment trial that had happened. Our first guest, Ishma Valenti, is going to be joining us. He is with the Malone Center as well. He's a part of Hold Cops Accountable from the Malone Center. He joins us now to give us a little bit of a brief overview of Hold Cops Accountable and also the progress of it and future goals of it as well. So he joins us now. Ishma, how are you doing? All right. I'm better than I deserve. How about yourself, y'all? Good. Sorry, it cut out at the beginning there. I didn't, the audio. Okay, no, I'm sorry. I'm better than I deserve. How are y'all doing? Pretty good. Thank you for joining us we wanted to um have a brief conversation with you for a while now about everything that has been going on with hold cops accountable um and there's a lot of people who aren't familiar uh so if you could please give us a brief overview of kind of kind of what it is sure thing again thanks for having me i appreciate it and i'm sorry about my delay of getting on uh in the past weeks so hca hold cops accountable this was an agreement that was made uh, between community leaders and LPD and to be a, to come together uh, for the community, to be able to ask directly questions to the police, to be able to get feedback from the police and to be able to move the social justice issue forward in a positive way. And then also to be able to just have more accountability in policing so that we could make steps. When I say we, I mean the community could give suggestions, give critiques and make steps to get some of the demands that we all know that we need uh, to change the way that policing is done so that in particular, I'm unabashedly uh, about it, so that black people can feel like they are represented and protected by the police, not harassed and brutalized. So this came about with HCA, what was the, the time frame of it coming together? Cause it happened back when the protests were kicking off and you know things were hot with um, the Black Lives Matter movement. So can you give us a timeline of how fast that came along and who else was involved? Was it just the Malone Center or were there outside entities that helped put it together? Yeah, most definitely, great question. So when George Floyd was murdered, um, three days later, uh, I believe, or four days later in Lincoln, there was uh, protests that were demanding uh, not only accountability from uh, more accountability from police here, but also on a national level, we just wanted to, it seemed like, wanted to be a part of that voice saying that we hear you and that we want to make things right nationwide. After uh, that Friday night of protest in Lincoln, um, excuse me, before that Friday night of protest in Lincoln, I was contacted by uh, an officer from LPD, Luke Bonkowitz, and we've known each other for the past couple of years and worked with each other on other initiatives that work to bring community and police together and also help to bring accountability through policing through different stats that we've able to, been able to garner. So 
he reached out to me, said, Ishma, um, and this is his exact words, where Ishma, too many times we were asking black people to take the first step. Uh, we need to take the first step. When he said we, he's meaning police. He said, what can we do? What can we do to help be a part of the solution here? I know we're not, we're not perfect by any means, but what can we do? So I said, all right, well, let's meet. You know, it wouldn't be a good time to meet. We met that Sunday. So uh, the Sunday after George Floyd was killed, uh, we met. And uh, from there, I met with other community leaders from different churches in the, in the city, but also with other community leaders that I've known in the past that I've worked with, uh, really bright, great individuals. And, uh, and anybody that I didn't meet with, uh, I've tried to meet with afterwards, and I still uh, accept anybody's invitation because everybody is a part of the solution, and I never want to negate anyone's voice. But met with other community leaders, and we brought together a, a, what we thought was a first step a first step to bring police, to bring community to the table, to be able to speak with each other frequently, often, and in a consistent manner to bring about these changes. And so by, so Sunday, uh, when Luke and I had met, and by the next Tuesday, we had a draft uh, of, in two days, we had a draft with other community leaders, and then was, were able to get sign on by LPD by Wednesday. And we had to, we were able to announce uh, to the rest of the public on Wednesday that to be able to get more input to continue to try to make things happen more. So then after we got more input, we realized, okay, we sure we can get together monthly or quarterly, but what are the action steps out of that? How are we going to implement the things that are said that are brought up in those meetings? So cool, a hundred people come to a meeting and say things, but then how do we implement, make action towards those words and those demands that those people are, are asking for or demanding? And so we created, created trace um, and the TRACE Committee stands for Trust, Respect, Accountability, um, co Collaboration or Cooperation, and Equity. And that worked to make uh, subcommittees that were able to start uh, to work towards police reform as in, in the uh, use, of force, use of force policies, community reform as in getting more information to not only police districts, but also to the community um, about their rights and what and what they have rights, uh, investigation rights. And so it went on to end all these things that tried to find some solutions for these uh, symptoms that we were seeing that were all symptoms caused by the disease of white supremacy. And so we were with these subcommittees, uh, we're able to do more and more work. And, and we are inviting as many people that want to come and help work on subcommittees. Um, we can put my information in, in this uh, interview so that people can come and join on and be a part of that. I do want to ask you, um, on the outside looking in, right, so with HCA, it's more so holding uh, the police accountable with everything that's going on. Um, how has that progress been? So, you know, we talk about transparency and being able to see more of everything that's going on. Has that process been easy to get that information? Has there been resistance from the police front on providing that true transparency? So, so far, to be quite honest, LPD um, has done a great job with being able for anything that I've asked for, that, that committee members asked for, they not only provided the stats, but then had captains come and meet with us, uh, the chief come and meet with us as well, and being able to be face-to-face -to, -face to talk about not only policy changes that we want to see, but any information or stats that we want to see, and to be candidly open and very, very honest with ideals or things that we think about the stats that we are presented with, whether that's uh, uh, amount of calls or, or responses that they give out to the near South neighborhood, 
or the amount of, of uh, complaints of harassment that we're getting from uh, minorities or, or black people in particular, or the egregious um, amount of black people that are saying that they have some type of investigation that they were wronged by the police and how uh, uh, out of, I believe, the 65 that we looked at, um, none had been had been substantiated as in finding any fault by the police. And so, again, uh, LPD, of course, is not perfect, but I will give them credit of being able to step up to the table anytime that we've asked and being transparent with the data that they have and being able to come to an honest conversation. Whether we agree on something or not, it's been great to be able to have an honest conversation to be able to move that, that ball forward, if you will. Has there been accountability i mean has there been things that have been looked into with some officers that were probably not doing things the right way and has that been remedied How, i mean like has well, anything yeah. materialized from for example yeah for example our investigations committee um, has taken on four investigations now as in helping the people get the resources to make an investigation complaint and then working to see through that process and what that looks like and we've been able to uh, re actually be given uh to view body cam footage from police during uh, during a confrontation to where we had an investigate a person come and say, look, I was wrong, here's what happened. We took down their whole um, story and then been very, very cooperative even meeting with the chief about the exact, uh, the former chief, Blymeister, about the exact incident at hand. And so I would say that, yes, uh, the police have, the LPD in particular, have stepped up to be uh, forthright with anything that we've asked for. Also, I would say that our wonderful policy committee have worked hours and hours and hours looking through the use of force policies um, in LPD and gave two official suggestions, uh, excuse me, suggestion reports that really summarized a whole bunch and what and changes that they wanted to see, uh, first to the captain, then to uh, the chief. Um, and, and those uh, formal suggestions have not been looked at as, oh, these aren't things that we can do or, or with a lot of resistance. They've actually been welcomed um, uh, in many instances. And so uh, we're, we are uh, actually also excited for the new chief to come. Um, we, we're hoping in about mid-summer so that we can establish that same type of relationship to continue to move things forward, uh, to make for sure that there aren't these big egregious holes in the use of force policies or anything else so uh, a short answer lpd has been willing to cooperate with us and uh and the long answer was before <laughs> all right well thank you for hopping on ishmael to give us a little bit of that brief overview overview we'd like to talk to you a little bit in the future some more to kind of just see how the progress goes especially with the new chief going on and seeing how that trans transition is going to be like for well, most definitely. And hey, I thank you for your time. And I just want to tell anybody, if, if you want to get involved, um, we are welcoming to all people who want to be on a subcommittee. We want to hear your suggestions, ideas, and your experiences, because we cannot keep moving this ball forward without uh, more of the community stepping up to let us know the type of changes that you want to see as well. All right. Well said. Thank you for joining all us. Right, I'll talk to you thank you, Morgan. Right, so as you guys know, there has been a whole other trial that has happened. As you guys know, there's been a whole other trial that had happened with the second impeachment of President or former President Donald Trump, I should say, and which resulted in a second acquittal of him. 
he was impeached by the House while he was president. Um, the Senate decided to hold off in his trial to begin it after the new president was sworn in, which resulted in acquittal. So I wanted to talk a little bit about this with Emily and Mel, some journalist friends that we have here, Melanie from Protein, freelance indie journalist, as well as Emily Chen Newton from Noise. How are you guys doing? Good, good. Good. I just want to get your brief overall thoughts right off the top, what you guys think about everything that had gone down. Not surprised, honestly, at all. Um, I wasn't really um, expecting a whole lot from the impeachment proceedings. I've already seen Trump acquitted once. Um, there was a brief moment where I was a little disappointed that uh, it didn't didn't shake out the way we wanted it to, but I'm not surprised that it happened, you know? You know what's interesting? It's everybody who was involved in the whole insurrection, they were, they were saying they were doing this because they thought Trump was telling them to do this, to stop stop the votes from being certified. And the fact that those people are now facing federal charges and the person who gassed them up to do it just got let off the hook. Emily, how, what do you feel about that? Yeah, and there is, I mean, there is still time for other criminal charges now that he's a citizen. Um, that is, that's still a possibility, but that's also my optimism showing through. <laughs> well, actually today, yeah. uh, Either today or yesterday, a member of the House, I think, filed uh, yeah. a lawsuit against Trump and the Proud Boys and uh, the Oath Keepers yes. and his um, Trump's campaign staff for violating the 1985 KKK Act. Um, so wow. private lawsuits are coming, but... It remains to be seen what's going to happen. I wasn't know? aware of that 1985 KKK Act. Have you looked into that a little further? Yeah, let me let me look it up for you. Um, this is part of part of a, an older sort of. Let's see here. So the the Ku Klux Klan Act was passed at the behest of President Ulysses S. Grant following the Civil War. There was an additional 1985 sort of amendment to the act that says that um, um, the act created a precursor to the well-known civil rights statute and authorized a temporary suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. The act also imposed civil liability and criminal penalties for a range of private conspiracies. In 1985, there's a supporter advocacy clause that was included um, that says that um, conspiracies to overthrow the government wage war against the United States deprived any person or any class of persons of the equal protection of the laws or used force, int intimidation, or threat to prevent any citizen of the United States to lawfully um, give his support or advocacy to a federal candidate. This House of Representatives individual is using this act to say that these actions that happened on the 6th prevented him and other members of the House and Senate to do their federally appointed job, essentially. And so, you know, in 1985, there was a lot of intimidation that was happening. The KKK was using uh, intimidation to essentially stop these sort of things from happening in Congress, intimidate folks to, to stop doing their essentially federally, federally um, appointed duties from happening. And so this is a, 
a private lawsuit that's happening that was just filed either yesterday or today that's gonna that's suing all of these people so who did it uh, who uh who's bringing the suit oh boy i would have to look that up too give me a moment chatting, <laughs> i'll find it emily do you sure. really think something will materialize from this i mean if the senate was not going to hold him accountable do we really believe that I think Other that it's possible. I think it's possible that there is a combination of suits that are brought against him, and that could be brought uh, at state level. Various states um, are bringing suits against him, and it's not all around the insurrection. It's not all about January six. There's business things. There's previous um, activity during his campaign, and so I I do feel like it's possible. Like we probably won't see like one home run. <laughs> but you know, I think that it is a—it's a possibility to get a combination of these that could stack up. To—I um, don't know if it would result in jail time or large fines. I mean, the ultimate goal, if we think about why did they want to impeach him on the, the second account, the second time anyway, it was that it wasn't to get him out of office. Obviously, it was that clause at the end of if this happens, then you are barred from ever running for office again. So I think that is like. I don't know. I don't know if there's any other way to get that. Like, we can bring suits against them all I want, but is there anything else that ends with that? You're not allowed to no. run for office again? <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, the person who's bringing the suit is U U.S. Representative Benny Thompson, who is a Mississippi Democrat. Okay. He mm -hmm. alleges that Trump, his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, and the groups The Proud Boys and The Oath Keepers violated the KKK Act of 1871 when they attempted to prevent Congress from certifying the results of the 2020 election, it's being filed on behalf of Benny Thompson by the NAACP. Um, this is from today. It looks like, um, I don't know, they got a pretty good suit. They got a pretty good case going. Um, we'll see what happens. We didn't really expect that Trump's lawyers, his uh, his uh, very, very good lawyers who picked up the case after he fired his entire team, um, were going to do much in the impeachment charges. But, yeah, you know, and these 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 personal lawsuits and then the the, the investigation in, in Georgia about the uh, election tampering with the phone call that happened before all of this happened mm -hmm. may put a bit of a stop to Trump's activities, but because they acquitted him during the impeachment trial, as far as I know, he can still run for the presidency again. Do you think he will? Uh, if not him, someone in his camp will probably run. I mean, I would be very surprised if he didn't, you know? I mean, and campaigns are run on money. So that is where, like, if you stack up enough of these, and even though we know he's not as great of a businessman as he said that he was and he ran on, he does have money, and then people around him have money. But if, if he's drained of money to actually run, like, that is, I guess that's another tactic to consider. Um, but he has so many people who are still behind him, which is what we saw when, like, his lawyers were terrible. They were awful. Like, right? One they of a personal that. injury lawyer, so he wasn't yeah. even a constitutional scholar, as they say. One one of them was a it civil was rights lawyer, though, um, who had presided over extremely important civil rights cases and also represented the KKK uh, in, like, the 70s. Wow. Like, this guy is 
defense lawyer who uh, spent a lot of time uh, on cases on what we would consider both sides of the aisle. I mean, the dudes had a very diverse career and obviously it worked out, <laughs> right? So, um, and Trump, how much money did he, Trump raised like $76 million in Georgia, I think. Um, and didn't spend any of it on the election certification lawsuits, I think. Mm. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, yeah. Trump raised $76 million, then spent nothing on vote challenges or Georgia. So, you know, like the dude has the ability to raise quite a bit of money. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it depends on how much he spends on these suits. So the thing is, is that I'm not sure I'm not sure that we're going to see much from it. You know what I mean? Yeah. One thing that was upsetting to me is that the House Democrats made their case, right? The impeachment managers. And at the end, the voting turned out how it did. But then Mitch McConnell got up there and said, Trump was at fault for doing this. Like this was clearly his fault, but they decided to vote to acquit him because they thought it was unconstitutional. Meanwhile, they voted the Tuesday before that, yes, it was constitutional. We're going to proceed with these trials. Mm -hmm. How does that play out with just like, I, I mean, I thought they were the party of law and order, right? I thought they followed <laughs> rules. So if yeah. you're not, did you, did you think that? <laughs> I mean, that's I mean, what the they GOP plays dirty all the time, right? The problem is the Democrats don't play dirty. And so, you know, they get their asses handed to them all the time. And like Mitch McConnell standing up there, literally, what is it, like an hour after he votes to acquit saying, mm -hmm. you know, Donald Trump is guilty of the thing that I just voted on is, is par for the course, man. Like, it doesn't make it sting any less to know that this is probably what was going to happen. Yeah. Like, it's just, I'm not surprised, but I'm also extremely done with the sort of electoral politics that are running this country. Yeah. And Mitch is, I feel like I'm on a first name basis because I'm from Kentucky. So Mitch, <laughs> um, he, I, I am, when, when it happened and he came out and he gave his speech and I was like, okay, like, I don't even care. I don't even, like, did, because there was a moment when we thought, like, maybe he was going to vote to convict, right? He was, like, doing things that made it seem like he, he was talking to some people. And then also the fact that he wanted to wait because it seemed like if he waited until the Democrats had control, then, then maybe he would go through it. So it seemed like maybe he was going to convict, but then he didn't. And I was like, hands in the air, whatever. But actually, I think it does matter where McConnell stands on this because he does still control so much of the party. So I think in terms of Trump getting support from the rest of the party to eventually ever run again, um, and maybe not even run for president, but to like any other office, anything that would be within the Republican party, I think it does matter where McConnell actually stands. Like would McConnell endorse him at this point? I don't think he would, right. but do you think Emily that had he voted to convict more Republicans would have? Because that would I, provide them some political coverage. I do. Maybe. Yes and no. Maybe. I mean, this seems like a free for all in the yeah. Right now. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think a few. I mean, they needed. We've got we've got like Lauren Boebert and and you know Marjorie Taylor Greene who are just like sending the fucking Q and on like they yes. they are flying that flag you know and they have a lot of power. No matter, you know, they're they're talking about censuring Marjorie Taylor Greene. They removed her from committees, but she's still in Congress, right? 
And so we have like this group of reactionaries in the GOP that will eventually, you know, uh, wield quite a bit of power, I think. They've got four years to figure it out. And so it's going to be kind of interesting to see how the GOP sort of regroups and what sort of factions are going to be built into the Biden administration and all of this stuff. Like, this isn't going away, you know? And fascists certainly are just taking their time to regroup and and find their way back into the mainstream, as they do every time. So, you know, it feels a lot to a lot of anti-fascists that I've talked to recently that, that, you know, post-insurrection, we have groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers who are sort of imploding because most of them are getting arrested, right? But it doesn't mean that fascist groups are gone, Mm -hmm. right? They're just regrouping. And so it feels much like, I don't know, 2014, 15, 16, post Charlottesville, like the same shit happened. So these are things that we have to kind of look forward to, look forward to, yeah, um, over the next couple of years and see what, what comes out of it, you know. Closing if it's thoughts, not Emily? Trump, it's going to be someone else, so. It could be Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz. Oh, oh God. Or <laughs> Madison Cawthorn. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Not happy happy about any of that. Well, thank you guys for coming on and sharing your thoughts with me. Appreciate it. Always good to see you guys, even if it's virtually. Yeah. I know. (laughs) Stay warm. Stay warm. Yes. Well, you're best. Okay. Bye. See ya. As you guys remember, at the end of 20, at the end of 2020, we did our whole candidate Q&A, and one guest that we had on there was Preston Love Jr. Uh, some technical difficulties, so he wasn't able to join us on the actual stream at that time, but we actually do have him here today to speak with you guys all about the work he's done in the black community as far as Black Votes Matter, also discuss his run for the 2020 United States Senate, and what he plans on doing in the future and where he might head out from here on out. So. See if he comes on the screen. Hello, Mr. Love. How are you doing? I uh, I can hear you. I did. I had my uh, had my mute on. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Last time we tried to have you on, but we had some technical difficulties, so you weren't able to join us virtually yes. through the stream. How have you been the past couple months? I have been. Uh, uh, one, well, I have been extremely, uh, extremely busy. Can you hear me now? Mm-hmm. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. I've been extremely busy. Uh, would you prefer my earphones? Either one's fine. We can hear you. We can hear okay. you perfectly. I, I can hear you fine. In fact, uh, I can hear you almost too good on the earphones. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh. I have been extremely busy and uh, uh, just, uh, of course, all of the uh, residuals uh, as it relates to the election and now going into, where are you actually located? Uh, We're in Lincoln, Nebraska. In Lincoln? Yes. Okay. Because, you know, we have local elections coming up here. and then I'll be in Lincoln all day tomorrow as I try to fight the battles uh, 
at the legislature for some of the bad bills and support some of the good bills. Uh, so I decided to take off and spend all my time tomorrow uh, testifying. I did want to ask you, um, for the people who are watching, when you ran for the United States Senate in 2020 as a writing candidate, that was something that kind of happened, right? It wasn't necessarily planned or something that was, you know, in the works. It was just something I kind of fell into. What was that journey like? Because it was a brief amount of time to where you had to prepare and run for the Senate. What was that experience like? Well, it was very unique, uh, as you say. For one, um, when I announced, and I'll share just a little bit of how, why I announced, but when I announced, there was only 50 days left before the election, and I had $50. <laughs> and uh, so it was unique in that way. Uh, it was also unique as an African-American to be running for the very first time in the history of Nebraska in the general election supported by the Democratic Party or any party for the United States Senate. So there was history in that. The reason I came into the race so long, so with, with not much time left was because uh, during the primary, I was not involved. There was a wonderful African-American woman by the name of Alicia Shelton, who uh, was in the race. Uh, she came in third. The fellow who won uh, did some very bad judgment uh, items in his uh in, as it relates to a female uh, who was on his staff. And she, uh, she had evidence and brought it to bear. And the Democratic Party reputed that person and asked him to resign so that they could put me on the ballot. He refused to do so. And so that's why we decided to go ahead and let me run, but I had to run as a write-in candidate. And as you may know, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. I was just going to say, um, you know, it didn't, uh, he ended up, the, the seat was retained by a Republican. And I kind of just wanted to talk a little bit about the whole initiative that you have, Black Votes Matter. Right. So the goal is to encourage the black vote. So can you tell us some of the things that you guys do in that initiative to help pull out the black vote to elections, especially when we have, you know, local ones that are coming up so soon? Well, I can. And may I ask this question? It will affect my answers. Uh, I don't want to be disrespectful in terms of time. Uh, and I want to be smart in terms of the time that I develop uh, my answers. You will find out that when you live as long as I, and you have not, 
but would you live as long as I? I've had so many experiences and I have accumulated uh, so much wisdom in that journey that sometimes I have a tendency to teach while I answer. But my organization, so let me ask that question. What is the basic time frames that we will have together this evening? I have 10 more minutes. Sorry? 10, 15 more minutes. Okay. So that would change my answer. I'm glad. It would take me 10 to 15 minutes to warm up. <laughs> you not told me that. <laughs> but uh, it's my pleasure, first of all, to be with you and all of your viewers and watchers. It's my pleasure. And I hope that we can do it regularly. There's a lot going on. But my organization, uh, Black Votes Matter, uh, came as a result, as some of you may know, I have been uh, worried and working uh, in the electoral field for, hold your breath, for 40 years, <laughs> since 1980. I was a campaign manager for the iconic uh, Jesse Jackson, who ran for, pres for president in 1984. I was his campaign manager. I ran, I organized and ran his campaign. Uh, but so my hometown, Omaha, Nebraska, when I moved back in uh, 2006, I was very distraught about the black vote and the black, uh, black voter participation. And so I started a organization uh, called Voter Participation Project, which evolved into the Black Votes Matter. The whole idea of Black Votes Matter was to get our people uh, out to vote, to educate them on the, the value of voting, to provide tools for them to educate themselves, to provide tools for them to get to the polls, to register them, to mobilize them. Uh, uh, all of those things uh, is what Black Votes Matter started out being about. And that is what we did from the very beginning. We registered, we followed up with people, we took them to the poll. We had town hall meetings and, and that's before COVID. We had lots of in-person meetings, teaching them about the issues, allowing them to meet and ask candidates questions, all of those things with the eye on getting them out to vote at a higher rate but because of the poverty-stricken community that we are here in North Omaha, we were not voting. And so, but it has evolved, Black Votes Matter has, into other things uh, to develop uh, our youth. Uh, the picture that you have and that you see behind me is, is about 75 people in uh, Selma, Alabama, standing outside the Edmund Pettus Bridge where John Lewis was beat up, fighting for the right to vote. And every year, Black Votes Matter takes this many people and we go across the bridge, but we go all over the southern uh, part of the United States to Memphis and, and to uh, Tennessee, to Jackson, Mississippi, Birmingham, Tuskegee, uh, Selma, go across this bridge, 
Montgomery and Atlanta, all expenses paid, to teach our youth and some adults about why they need to vote. So Black Votes Matter is involved every election in all of those things and more. Have you seen a uh, much better turnout? So, you know, you talked about focusing on North Omaha because there hasn't been a huge turnout in that area of town. Um, have you expanded past Omaha and maybe to other areas, maybe more rural areas or, you know, or, I know it's titled, it's called Black Votes Matter, but have you guys just yeah. encouraged as many people to just to go yeah, out and exercise? That's there? a very good question. Uh, my initial reason for starting Black Votes Matter was about black folks, <laughs> yeah. uh, about our people. But uh, it, we have evolved over the years. We have been very collaborative with uh, Latinx, with uh, uh, South Sudanese and Somalians and other African nations and Asians. Uh, what is your nationality? South Sudanese. South Sudanese. And so I've had wonderful working relationship with so many South Sudanese in this area. But so, yes, we have branched beyond just our focus on, quote, African-Americans to get them out to vote, because all of people of color uh, have the challenge and need that to, uh, uh, whatever we can offer to help us get out to vote, but uh, not in the abstract, but to leverage and fight for our needs by having candidates to win elections that will be looking out for us and and fighting our battles and whose feet we can whose feet we can hold to the fire but whose feet we respect and so and we have had great success part of your question is we have increased uh, significantly the turnout in our com respective communities to a degree where uh, I feel proud that we've worked so hard because it was not easy at first to get us out. With that, would you say that you see yourself running for office in the future? You know, you talk about getting people out and exercising the right to vote and branching out and evolving to many other different communities, you know. It sounds just the whole minorities in general trying to strengthen yeah. that, the voter turnout in that. Do you see yeah. yourself running for office in the future? You've been encouraging people to vote. Are you, do you well, have any future plans? I got to get your commitment that I get your vote if I do. But no, that's all right. But let me just say this quickly, real fast. I want to make sure that your viewers and listeners know that we made, when I ran for United States Senate, uh, I received 62,300 write-in votes. Nobody in the history of Nebraska, black or white, has ever received that many write-in votes ever. And so we made history, and we got those votes not only in my community, North Omaha, and not only in Omaha, and not only in Douglas County, but all over the state. I was really surprised of that. But... With all that said, I don't see myself uh, as a candidate for office. Uh, my attention is uh, right now, going forward, is to continue to do 
the key things that we do in Black Folks Matter. But my attention right now is focused on youth development and to try to create more youth who are very aware. That's why I do this tour, this annual tour to teach our young kids about uh, the struggle to get the right to vote and to try to inspire them. So the answer to your question is, no, I don't see myself. Lots of people are talking to me about all, every office that comes up now after my Senate race. They talk to me about mayor. They're talking to me about uh, the uh, congressional race uh, next year, uh, even the Senate race that will be next year for the other senator race. But I, I'm, 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 I'm not playing any kind of tricky games or saying cute little things about not running. I'm, I'm not really planning to run. I'm going to concentrate on the work that has to be done. What moments of history or what have been some really defining moments, you know, as we are these days, you know, we have past history that we can go off that inspires us to do more and to be better and be more. Um, and then there's also those moments of living history that we're a part of. What have been some, with it being Black History Month, what are some key moments in your life or, you know, in history that have really defined your life and really been your compass, per se? In my life? <laughs> well, very good question. Uh, I first want to say to you, uh, I ask for clarification of my life because uh, you may know that I'm a professor at University of Nebraska in Omaha, and I teach a course called the African American Experience in politics, in which I teach uh, and have thoughts and wisdom about the whole experience, including me, going all the way back to slavery, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, and all the way up through now. But personally, my experience began in North Omaha, where the African-American community and myself included were redlined and boxed in a very small area, not allowed uh, uh, practically to buy or rent outside a, a certain area. Lenders would not lend. I grew up in a segregated city, Omaha. And then I went on to, uh, but, but the, all of us who grew up with me and my generation, African-Americans, we were unified people. We were happy. Uh, our parents were committed to us, and it formed our bond as a unified people at that time. I went on to play football for the Huskers there in Lincoln. I don't know if you knew that. And the uh, when I played at Nebraska, there were only eight African-American black players. And we were pioneers for the Huskers. And that form was a significant experience as we were the one of the few uh, football teams in the nation other than all the historical black colleges and universities that had blacks on the team. We only had eight, eight total. 
and we were faced with racism on the campus and some interaction racist-wise on the team, but we grew from that, learned from that, and every aspect of my life, there was a pioneering aspect of it because of when I lived. I worked for IBM for 15 years, was one of the first African-Americans ever to hold a executive job in those days in the late 60s and early 70s. I, uh, that made significant difference on me. And all of that time, I was uh, outside of the civil rights movement, but was fighting battles that were unique to me, but was so not unique to blacks all over this country. And then I went and lived in Atlanta, quit IBM, started my own business in Atlanta, and met all of the iconic civil rights leaders and worked with them. And that's where I met Jesse Jackson, where he asked me to organize and run his campaign for president in 1984. Very historic. And my experience with him and with Andrew Young and with the King family changed me forever. I used to be, I hate to say it, but I used to be focused on myself. How many cars I could buy? What kind of outfits I could? How many girlfriends could I chase down? And <laughs> not a thing about my fellow man, I'm sorry to say. But when my experience, and I was transformed uh, in Atlanta and became committed almost 40 years ago now to, to my community and my people, and that was significant in my life. And all during that time, I would say that we, we mourn and demand change as a result of George Floyd, but I've seen George Floyd every part of my life by another name. I've seen just wasteful and reckless and unnecessary killing of our black males and females and the civil rights movement at its worst and at its best and the people who lost their life. And I was part of that process to some degree. All of that has affected me. And while I sit here with my gray hair and my gray beard uh, and could very well be sitting at home it is very cold up here. I know it's warm in Lincoln, but it's really cold. Up <laughs> no, here. it's not. <laughs> yeah. It's not. But warm I have a either. wonderful wife, and she and I have a wonderful relationship. There is a part of me that would like to just sit in my easy chair and uh, praise God for His blessings on me and her, and let you and your generation solved the problems, but I am just compelled to continue to fight the fight. And I appreciate you and want hope to collaborate with your generation and you and your organization. And I provide my time right now to start that process because I'm not through yet. All right, well, thank you, Mr. Love Jr., for coming on and speaking with us. Always a pleasure. 
Um, thank you for everything that you do with encouraging people to go out and exercise their right to vote and, you know, being an educator and really trying to guide the up and coming generation. So thank you for that. Well, let me just say thank you again for having me. Uh, it went well tonight. We didn't have any interruptions <laughs> or anything. But I hope that you understand that I'm committed to working with, I'm at your service. Anything I could do going forward with you as a person, but uh, your organization, I surely love the South Sudanese people. But it's not really just that, but generationally as well, that you can always reach out to me to do whatever you ask me to do. It'd be my pleasure, and I enjoyed the time with you tonight. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining. All right. Thank you guys for watching this episode of the Jazari Qual Show. Episode three, we will be back again on Thursday for another special episode with other guests that are going to be joining us. Just wanted to give an overview, too, of, once again, for those of you guys just tuning in, the family that we've been helping out currently. Um, it's a mom and a dad, three small children, eight-year-old boy, one-year-old girl, one-month-old boy. And we've been trying to find them permanent housing and also get them integrated into the community here in LNK. Check out the Facebook page for more information on that. You guys have been so awesome so far with helping with the outreach and making sure that they are getting the essentials and the things that they need. So we really do appreciate that. Thank you for watching this episode of the Jazari Qual Show. Be sure to like and share everywhere with all your friends. We'll be back again, like I said, with another episode here soon. Thank you guys for supporting us. And oh, people ask all the time, like, where we get this. All merchandise is available on qualdom.com, so be sure to check that out. And we'll see you here next time. Bye.